Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jaina Hill. And today we ask the question, do humans even matter here anymore? Excelsior. I find myself asking that question quite often. I was gonna say, did humans matter before we read these comics? In the grand cosmic scheme of things, maybe not. But to humans, probably. Isn't Earth just like a celestial egg or something? Uh, let's not dwell on that. (laughs) We're talking to Celestials because we're back into the Eternals after a week off. (laughs) Yep. Yep, yep, yep. It's back. They, uh... I had a weird... This was weird because it was the second half of the one collection we've been doing, but it's like a completely different comic now. Yeah, it's wild how different it is, but also why it's all collected in this Dreaming Celestials saga, even though nothing in the first part really matters to it other than it happened before and kind of is the groundwork for the first issue of this 12-issue miniseries, um, essentially bringing back the Eternals to their, not rightful place, but to a a self-titled place, at least. Right, because where did we leave off last time? Last time we were reading a lot of non-Eternal stuff that the Eternals showed up in. Yeah, we had read uh, some What If, which they were backups in. We read uh, an Iron Man annual, and we read a few Avengers issues. And we'll we'll be back to to the Avengers uh, eventually, but not this time. This time, we're reading Volume 2 of the Eternals, which was just 12 issues. Uh, at the end of the last one, most of the Eternals fucked off into space after forming the Unimind. Uh, a bunch remained here on Earth, and, you know, there were a bunch of Avengers things happening around it that we're never going to follow up on, because that's Avengers stuff. Yeah, although I was, uh, nothing puts a shine on the Avengers like standing next to the Eternals. Oh, gosh, yeah. Because it's like uh, you put the Avengers next to the X-Men and you're like, who are these losers? But then you have the Avengers hanging out with the Eternals and you're like, wow, the Avengers are awesome. <laughs> I guess I'm showing my allegiance. Just just a little bit. But so the, it's the, the Eternals are coming back with their own self-titled 12-issue series. But the last time we read it, the last time we were reading Eternals took us into 1984, right? So we're not really missing a beat. There hasn't been a year without the Eternals since they've debuted. They're about... I've, I feel like there was some time in between, but maybe not that much. Yeah, there, there was around a year between the What Ifs and the Iron Man Annual, because um, I don't know when the Iron Man Annual came out. It was sometime in 1983. Yeah, so that was probably uh, the... I'm, I'm just wondering what was the longest time the Eternals went away and then remained Eternal and came back. We'll probably be encountering that soon. <laughs> yeah, I keep being surprised we haven't hit it already. But so uh, these comics came out between uh, 85 and 86. Um, and were, do you know if they were announced as a, a limited series? Yes, the first issue has on its cover number one in a 12-issue limited series. Well, I don't think they did that very commonly before around hereabouts in Marvel history. No, there's always this feeling that I get when when I hear like old-school com- Marvel Comics fans talk about how series would just kind of end and the letters page would be like, Sup, it's the last issue. <laughs> Pre-internet <laughs> but, but there times. would be no miniseries. I'm like, ah, how the times haven't changed. Yeah, I guess just new technology, same old shit. Yeah, but yeah, this one is billed as, a, as an event of sorts, as it's, you know, limited, and it's meant to be limited and not... You know, we got seven issues in, and sorry, sales kind of sucked. Yeah, because this is this is coming out in the Bronze Age. Um, so, uh, Mutant Massacre comes out in 1986, and I feel like that's the kind of comic book we're in, where there's a lot of threads being juggled around issue to issue, but it's like pretty soap operatic. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, uh, like, suddenly you'll be focusing on what a couple characters are doing for one issue. Uh, it, on the back burner, there'll be another story, and they're kind of doing a uh, round robin of which one gets the focus. Yeah. And that makes sense because uh, this comic is written by Peter B. Gillis and uh, later by Walt Simonson, who have we read any Simonson on the pod yet? I feel like we no. have. No. We've read, uh, well, technically, we read some Simonson illustrated. I don't know if he wrote the issue, too. He might have. The Thor annual. For the Eternals. I think it was his first, or one of his first ones, for Marvel. 
Man, that's like what a what a podcast we are that the first time we mention Walt Simonson is in the context of like fill in Eternals issues. Yeah, but before he even really got to do any Thor stuff, like meaningfully, which is wild. Uh, no, Simonson had been writing Thor for a little while when this starts. Simonson starts on Thor in 83. Oh, I meant like his first appearance when we, we did before. Oh, yeah. Uh, just uh, th- that's it's crazy to me that we're like approaching Walt Simonson at probably the height of his powers. This is like uh, when he's uh, very popular and kind of uh, and at the top of the game. Not that he ever went anywhere. He's still great. But we're talking about his eternal stuff, which I don't think <laughs> is his uh, best love stuff. I don't think anything Eternals is anyone's best love stuff, or at least not yet. Um, the other writer, uh, is, um, is one Peter Gillis. Did you, are you familiar with Peter Gillis? Because I recognize the name, but I didn't put two and two together for a little while. No, I mean, he wrote the intro to this collection and, you know, I, I enjoyed the stuff that we were reading from him before, but the name is, is familiar, but I don't have the connection. So I was looking at his credits, and uh, he was most active in the 80s. I think he his last Marvel issue came out in 1992. Mm-hmm. And he had, like, a fun 90s with lots of, like, weird image-looking stuff. He worked on Grimjack for a couple issues. Mm-hmm. But I guess I first encountered—or I didn't first encounter, but I, I most encountered Gillis when I have a friend who's not much of a comics reader who uh, was a big fan of The Last Unicorn. And Gillis was the uh, writer of the six-issue IDW book that came out in 2010, which I bought oh. for said friend, and that kind of was a gateway to comics for her. Mm-hmm. So just like, uh, way to go, Gillis. You you got a, uh, you, you converted a non-believer. Well done, Gillis. But my first place I ever encountered uh, Gillis was, uh, he did a bunch of tie-ins to Gamma World, a really weird TSR RPG that's kind of like legendarily unplayable. It's a tabletop game. What? But I would always check out because everyone said Gamma World has the coolest artwork, and it did. It has, like, insane mutants in an apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> and um, Gillis wrote the tie-in comic, which I remember tracking down in, like, a uh, you know a quarter bin. That's wild. Right? And uh, so I actually, that was probably the first Gillis comic I ever read. What? <laughs> Come, I just can't believe it. I mean, I can, but also... <laughs> It's just so funny. I get why he's not necessarily a household name at the, uh, the, you know, the top of everybody's recollection in the way that Simonson is, because Simonson was influential. Simonson still does contours. But, like, Gillis had a wild career. Yeah. He's one of those, uh, I guess it would be like a journeyman. Yeah. Working all, all over the place, doing doing what he what he can and, and putting in... Putting in good work, but not necessarily the stuff that's, like, shiny. Well, yeah, and he's not doing the most popular comics at any time, but he seems like he uh, picked his projects and did stuff that he was enthusiastic about. And that comes across in these Eternals. These, these Eternals feel the least perfunctory so far, I would For say. For sure, yeah. And we even get a few new Eternals. And a few old ones. Now, quite a few old ones. Quite a few old ones. But not the oldest one. Or at least not the oldest human. Not the oldest human? Yeah. Um, Dr. Damien. Oh, oh, we're talking, of course, about the very popular character. Was Dr. Damien in the Eternals movie? Oh, shit, I don't know. I n- See, once we get, once we finish this, I think we need to watch the movie. Like, I need to watch it again, you need to watch it for the first time. We'll both be extra disappointed, but it'll be cool to be able to point and be like, I know where that person is. Well, just Dr. Damien seems like one of those characters who was, like, tailor-made for the MCU, where he's just, like a bogus science character hanging out next to the cool guys who you can cast like an amazing Oscar winning actor in that role and then pay them a zillion bucks. No, I don't remember Dr. Damien, but it's very possible he is in there and I just don't recognize him. Who would you uh, cast as Dr. Damien in the MCU? Mm, That's a good question. Cause they've all, they already cast a lot of the good old white guys with beards. Mm. I got one more and that's uh, Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell. Mm. Why isn't the MC Malcolm McDowell will always return your calls. Malcolm McDowell's never said no to a role before Marvel. Why aren't you calling the great Stanley Kubrick performing at Malcolm McDowell? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think he would make a great Dr. Damien, but only because uh, maybe he would. 
I don't know, he just seems a little too sour. And, well, the problem is also that when you cast, like, an Oscar winner as one of those characters, suddenly they become fan favorites because, like, everyone's like, wow, this is such a good performance by an Oscar winner that we all... I'm trying to think of an example now, but when, and it's escaping Odin. me. Yeah, Odin's a good one. I guess, like, Aunt May, the way the MCU has used her, seems very... Mm. Every time she's on the screen, it seems like a cameo. Yeah, poor Odin. Poor I, Odin. I wish Odin was kind of suckier. In the MCU, he did. He wasn't as terrible a dad as he is in the comics, and I kind of wanted him to be a worse dad. <laughs> I mean, we've read quite a few old Thor comics for, for this now, and yeah, Odin never not sucks. Yeah, even the best of Odin, you're like, come on, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> um, I'm looking through. Uh, there, there's a lot of different artists on this one. Um, oh yeah, led mostly by uh, the great Sal Buscema, who I think we discussed in the past on this podcast, right? At some length. At some length, for sure. I think I think it was even in the last part, unless yeah, I it think was so. in the um, Thor. Unless he was doing Thor issues, it might have been there. I think he was doing Thor issues. I think that's where we last encountered him. And I think that's not the we've encountered him a good time as uh, uh, besides then. I think he, he I think he shows up every time we're in the seventies or eighties. Oh, that would make sense. He's he's kind of all over the place. I like his art here more than than in the Thor issues. Yeah, it just feels uh, more solid. Yeah, well, and he feels more dialed into the story. I'm gonna actually. There's a bunch of times when there's places that we revisit. I'm like, oh, this is like a place where people are, and not like a box. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I also just want to uh, call attention and shout out to uh, Keith Pollard, who also did a number of these issues. Mm-hmm. Two of them, to be exact. Um, but Keith Pollard was um, another guy who shows up like a lot throughout Marvel, but I don't know if he has a, um, a signature work besides uh, being the co-creator of Black Cat. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was drawing that issue uh, with Marv Wolfman was writing it, I think. Wow. And, but like, uh, I, I've seen Keith Pollard did a, a bunch of the Master of Kung Fu, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, like Shang-Chi stuff. Mm-hmm. That was like, where Shang-Chi is just drawn to look exactly like Bruce Lee. <laughs> um and those are real fun i like th- that that zone of like shang chi luke cage heroes for higher 70s stuff i love those comics they've got their own aesthetic that's all their own and i also uh encountered uh pollard as a kid because he did the um the classic johnny quest comics and i had a cousin who was obsessed with oh those. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of these artists this is like such a cool era of artists because a lot of these guys um worked in like different commercial spaces throughout these decades mm-hmm. and so you get like weird licensed comics or you find out that somebody drew a whole series of like happy meal comics like uh like, it just the comics culture in the 90s was different than it is now it was less uh it, w- it was just becoming plasticky and mass-produced <laughs> it was right it was before it really got super plasticky right yeah well so this is this is like the transition of guys who like came up in the gritty world of month-to-month publishing comics who are now making the transition into drawing, like, also boxes for action figures and stuff. Ah. Gotcha. I, I feel like uh, before, like, in the 70s, no one's making action figures, really. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I wonder, sure. I was like, there's something there. There's something there that could be explored. I'm sure, like, uh, go listen to a toy podcast, right? About uh, when G.I. Joes and Transformers are blowing up and they start commodifying things to the Gen Xers. Hmm. Yeah. Um, before we go to commercial, and then we're going to come back and talk about the story and the characters and the stuff in these issues. Um, I just got one question for you, Elias, which is, mm-hmm. were these 12 issues good for the Eternals? Like, as a as a brand, as a series? Hmm. That's a good question. Because on the one hand, I would say, yes, I do think it is. But I'm also hesitant because i kind of liked the avengers issues more i don't know i don't i don't really know where i sit with this series i think maybe my thoughts will become a little bit more clarified as we go through it yeah i mean this this was definitely the most up and down one because this would drag and then suddenly it would be kind of interesting i think my answer to my own question is that the Eternals like needed a huge breakout hit at this point because they're 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 running with such a deficit of uh chugging along for so many years god right and while this was not like unpleasant to read most of the time and sometimes it was a little bit boring it needed like a stellar run to really put some juice into the thing yeah and that this was not that i can say that with uh absolutely no hesitancy yeah um but let's take a commercial break and then we're gonna come back and then we're gonna really get into these issues 
Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at multiversitycomics.com. Each week we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commandy. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinbro, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And welcome back. We're talking The Eternals Volume 2, 12-issue miniseries from... I'm going to read all the credits... Writers, Peter B. Gillis on issues 1 through 8 and Walt Simonson, issues 9 through 12. Penciled by Sal Buscema on issues 1 through 9, Keith Pollard, 10 through 11, and Paul Ryan on issue 12. Not that Paul Ryan. (laughs) Uh, Inked by Al Gordon on issues 1 through 3, Keith Williams on issue 4, Sal Buscema on issues 5, 6, and 8. Uh, Danny Bulanati on issues 7 and 9 through 11, uh, Walt Simonson and Tom Morgan on issue 10, Je- Jeff Isherwood on issue 11, uh, and Sam DeLaRosa and Al Williamson on issue 12. It was lettered by Joe Rosen, issues 1 through 4, and Rick Parker, issues 5 through 12, and the colorists were George Russos on issues 1 through 10 and 12, and Bob Sharon on issues 11, sorry, just issue 11, and the colors were reconstructed by Wesley Wong, issues 1 through 4, All Thumbs Creative, issues 5 through 8, and Tom Mullen, issues 9 through 12. We appreciate comic creators on this show. We want to credit them all. Yes. Gotta credit them all. Um, there's people. a lot of, a lot of, like, uh, regulars there. A lot of faces from this era that I'm recognizing. Like, uh, Al Gordon's around, and, and Keith Williams are around everywhere. So is, uh, letterer Joe Rosen. Jeff Isherwood is a name that's so familiar to me, but I could not tell you what books and i don't know why i'm probably thinking of like cat Yronwood. <laughs> this is all i guess the this era in the 70s is the marvel era i've read the least from probably or that there is the most from it that i haven't read because like in the 60s there weren't as many comics yeah but it still goes to show you you will always have a lot of inkers <laughs> yeah that's a, again that's not changed much in 50 years no the grueling punishing schedule of, of doing these comics, sadly. Yeah, it's tough on... I, I see why Peter B. Gillis uh, started doing like weird off-the-beaten-path stuff, because that's probably a lot more fun. Probably, yeah. So issue one, we're starting off immediately with Bronze Age nonsense, like, every, like all the human characters getting their memories wiped or not. Yeah, we have to go through that. Although, I really do love the way it's presented it's just a recap for anyone coming in who hasn't read anything beforehand which you know if you weren't paying close attention why would you be reading these what if issues this is before we really had you know i guess comprehensive lists of what do i need to read beforehand and access to them like uh if you couldn't find uh, all of the back issues you were missing pieces of the story yeah yeah so it opens with a uh, very Kirby-esque page and few panel, <laughs> few few pages, in fact, of uh oh, what's his name? Why am I blanking on it? This is the other Doctor that you thought was Doctor Damien, but is actually oh, he's he's Samuel. Doctor Samuel? I still thought that was Doctor Damien. Uh, no, his first name is Samuel. Cersei just calls him Samuel the whole time. Samuel Holden. I looked it up. Uh, Holden. yeah, I actually legit thought that that was Doctor Damien the whole time. Yep. Nope. This Doctor Holden uh, is giving a presentation to a bunch of bunch of uh, professors about the the Eternals and and everything that happened. And this is the big explanation for why does no one remember new york being literally lit on fire by the deviants in the first eternal series which is like uh, i appreciate the trying to repair the continuity but like i don't know i feel like Cathan is always taking over like all of transia and nobody seems to notice in europe yeah i was gonna say they shouldn't bother but in this era at least there's the there's significantly less history to have to clean up like it's only 20 years or so as opposed to the now 60 years or so of comics. Unfortunately, uh, this is kind of what start in the 80s, I feel like, is where the clutter starts getting worse and worse. 
Yeah, this series does not do much to to alleviate that. But we get some very cool Kirby-esque designs. A lot of nice crackle. Not a lot of nice crackle. I mean, this was probably fun for all these different artists to get to do a Kirby riff. I'm sure. Right, this is the, this is the generation after Kirby. So all of them mm-hmm. were into Kirby when they were first coming up. Yeah. And uh, Bushema is definitely trying to make the first issue of Eternals feel and look like a Kirby book. And as much as he can, there are more panels per page. There's less of the six panel grids that are divided up there's a lot more closer to eight panels um and whatnot but the designs are hewing closer to the way kirby would draw them than they would become throughout the rest of the series and and the the figure design too like i feel like everyone's a little bit more square in this issue and bushema usually has rounder characters yeah a little more square the posing is a lot a little bit more dramatic a lot more of the hands outstretched it's less uh, body, like normal conversational body language, which is, I think, which we should not be is like pretty bold and dynamic, but like Kirby is like the hammiest actor doing Hamlet. Oh, yeah. But he sells it. He does it so well. Yeah. Yeah. Bushama is always a joy for me. Yeah. And so this first issue is your favorite thing, but not featuring your favorite eternal, a wrestling issue. I literally wrote in my uh, notes, I can't be mad at Icarus wrestling. I was going to say, I'm like, I wish he had brought Vampirio in. Yeah. That would have been perfect. That would have been perfect. And as long as we're cleaning up continuity, yeah, have Icarus hanging out with his awesome old friend Vampirio. Yeah. But we don't know. The, the assumption is Vampirio went off with the rest of the Eternals into space. Why? Who knows? He loves wrestling. Of course he'd come back to wrestle when he found out how bad wrestling is in most of the galaxy. <laughs> Good point. Especially when Icarus tries to wrestle and he's like, you know what? I'm just going to use my eye beams instead. Which was like actually funny bit Icarus, five comedy points. But in this, we find out, it's the start of the plot. We kind of, we, we find out that the deviants are plotting something uh, and it's a lot of ground setting. Icarus returns. Icarus really becomes the focal character for better or worse. Yeah, and he had pretty much has been for most of the Eternals comics, I think. He's usually he's the most consistent appearing character. He's the first Eternal that we really met and got to know. He's got the I don't want to say the best design, but he has a very good striking central design. The other characters a little not so much. He's got the best costume for sure, because yeah. and also like that's changed the least, and um, he's he's that costume he's got in every single version of him, and those other characters, none of them have been consistent, and some of them are really different than what they became. Yeah, I think Cersei's might have stayed the same, but it's because hers was pretty pretty simple to begin with. Yeah, just like a green dress. Yeah, and she's always changing into different things anyway. Right. I I kind of wanted in the re- out of my wrestling would have liked Ben Grimm to show up. He's kind of midnighting as a wrestler. D-Man, I think D-Man was created by now. He's a, he's a professional wrestler. Just, uh, we had options. We had options. We did have options, but why why would they go with the good options when they could have this two-faced uh, deviant trap Icarus beneath the ring? I mean, I loved a good trap beneath the ring. I, I cannot deny it. Oh, is this is this a, a trope? Does this happen often? No, well, it happens, but rarely. That's how special it is. But, uh, ah. you know, evil demonic wrestlers are always disappearing and then suddenly cutting open the ring with, like, a knife and reaching up it and dragging someone down to hell. That's okay. Fair enough. Last time that happened to Brian, Dan- uh, Brian Danielson, he was still Daniel <laughs> Bryan at the time, uh, he he got shaved. He came out bald. Uh. Like, a, a lot of stuff, a lot of crazy stuff happens beneath the ring. It's just a, it's a void. Yeah, well, yeah, especially void. when the, you're dragged down by the fiend Bray Wyatt, who has like a funhouse dimension. It's a whole thing. See, so you say all these things and I'm amazed that I actually understand it. I'm amazed that you understand it too. I was trying to be an asshole. That's funny. <laughs> like I can see it now is really weird mask. Yeah. Ugh. Designed by the uh, guy who did the living dead makeup. Good for him. Yeah. He got commissioned by Bray Wyatt, who was like, I only settled for the best. Mm. I was going to say, what's scarier, that mask or Icarus's face in this one panel? It's on page 196 of my collection. I don't know how many pages into the first issue, but he's underground. He's staring. He's got like the fish eyes. It's very... Yeah, which is the, the fish eyes are pretty Kirby as well. Yeah. Do you have anything else with the first issue? Well, just in, in general, uh, they take off for Lemuria and a lot of the action 
in this uh, 12 issue series is in and around Lemuria. I appreciate that. Well, so I went back and I looked it up because uh, I was like, we've been there before. Surely I remember going there in the previous Eternals comic, but Lemuria first showed up in a Namor comic to be like uh, the Pacific counterpart to Atlantis. Mm hmm. Just to have, like, another underwater kingdom. Because that's the problem with all these underwater comics, is nobody can track who's down there, and then they never have any uh, villains to fight. Ah. Uh. I think this is the best Lemuria we've seen so far. It felt like a real place where people lived. Every time we've been there, I, I don't know, it feels like that one room in the Mines of Moria with all the pillars. <laughs> and goblins all crawling around. It's just like, yeah, it's just like these fa- this faceless hordes in the background. But this time it looked like a place with, like, houses and, like, uh, courtyards. Alleys. Yeah, alleys. It was like a... a, a and and it's cool having a monster. Who doesn't like a monster city? I mean, Elsa Bloodstone. Yeah, and it, it, at least it was, it was a place that, you know, you could revisit locations as opposed to, we're going to be here and then something's going to destroy it, as it was every other time. Although I'm pretty sure Lemuria, Lemuria gets destroyed almost as often as the Xavier Mansion. Yeah. It's kind of cursed that way. Yeah, I mean, the Earth has been blown apart how many times in Marvel and then reset through wish magic. Eh, don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not worried, uh, in general. But yeah, so, um, we're getting a lot of, like, deviant stuff in this arc. And after the deviants previously were, like, uh, draw, written pretty broadly, I feel like we're getting back at least a little bit of character nuance for them. What do you think? Yeah. As opposed to, I guess, what we were sort of getting in the Kirby stuff, it's coming back. Everything in between really painted the Deviants with a super broad brush. And even though so did Kirby, Kirby had so many different characterizations for all of them throughout that series. There was no pinning it down. But this is the first time where I feel like there is both, not pity for, but there there is an understanding of the Deviants as an actual society and not this like monolithic villainous other. Even though the characters we are following are trying to continue to paint that yeah which is a fascinating like contradiction and i can't and it's hard to tell like as we get through was that on purpose like where was gillis and simonson trying to be like yeah the eternals kind of suck and we're gonna explore that a little bit or if it was these are the archetypes we're running with it but the deviants are interesting so we could you know play around with them more i mean maybe that's the reason why uh why the eternals is such a hard sell is like instead of being the cool renegades that the racists are trying to hunt down they're kind of the racists oh yeah um oh yeah and and then i guess the story is like oh isn't it hard to root for these like really tortured guys but when they continue to not learn their lesson and fight the deviants again and again and again um it's just like unpleasant to hang out with these these jackasses. It really is, but the and it's even more unpleasant to read uh read Margot Damien's lines. Oh God, she's just she has once again been put in the story to be girl. Yeah, in like the most egregious sixties, Stanley has never talked to a girl way. Yeah, and it, I think that is a problem with Gillis's writing here is most of the female characters do feel like that. Cersei might be the one exception. And even she's got... They kind of get sidelined, because all the dudes have to be the dudes. And then Cersei is always uh, the Veronica to everyone else's Betty, and that's kind of all she has, is being like, oh, I'm a little bit darker. I like to cast illusions. Yeah. Dina just kind of is like, pouts the entire time. (laughs) Yeah, Thena was the biggest drag, I thought, but... I also think this was the most successful characterization we've gotten for her, which mm-hmm. is posi- positioning her as this, like, gloomy, hopeless romantic. Yeah, and I like that. That's, like, a character. Yeah, it's just a shame they don't do much with it. It is a shame they don't do much with it. Um, although we get we get a, a good episode, a good <laughs> episode, a good issue of it. Um, we're also introduced to, uh, early on, to Dave Chatterton in issue three. <laughs> All right. Uh, we should probably give a warning... Yeah, 30 minutes in uh, for for some of the the pretty insensitive approach approaches to uh, discussions of, of, of suicide. Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't know how explicit we have to get about their conversation. Dave Chatterton also seemed to me like a um, a character just tailor made to be played by an overqualified actor in the MCU. Mm hmm. 
in the Eternals movie. But yeah, he shows up and you can feel the issues kind of being like mental health is important. Uh, but there's no emotional connection. Like Cersei and Chatterton don't have any chemistry in this issue. God, he's just there. And uh, Dr. Holden is also kind of there. And he's like, well, still thought that was I'm the Damon. third now. I cannot believe that, the, that there are two different characters who are doctors. I, I can't believe that we have now introduced a third schlub. Yeah, I wasn't lying at the top. The humans are really, uh, really here to be schlubby and marginalized. Yeah, and, and Chatterton plays an important role. I'm like, why not just have Professor Holden fill that? He's already here. Why bring him back at all? I mean, uh, that's true. Professor Holden doesn't have any uh, chemistry with Cersei either. And that's, like, really unfortunate. Because I feel like if I'm going over to X-Men from the same year, all it is is, like, sexy, everybody's cheating on each other, and I can't put it down. Yeah, no wonder the yeah. Eternals were never, never loved. Well, yeah, they're just not sexy enough. Yeah. Issue two, I was going to say, if, if we're, I'm like, we got to move. We got 12 issues to go. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going through my notes kind of linearly, but I, I don't know if I'm going issue by issue, number by number necessarily. Okay. that That's probably a better way of handling this because as we get through, I think it, it's more interesting to talk theme by theme. Yeah. Like I was tracing character arcs in this. So, uh, like the the next guy who kind of shows up and uh, takes a big role if, if, in, that I got excited by was uh, Gilgamesh slash the Forgotten One. Oh yeah, he's still not named here. He's still just called the Forgotten One. I kind of forgot that he's that's still uh, mysterious. Um, but they definitely said his name in one of the earlier comics. They definitely said it in like in the Kirby comic, and then every writer afterwards is like, no, we have to keep this a secret. They're just like, looks like we forgot. Yeah. I guess I guess that's it. Um, but I was gonna say, Forgotten One Gilgamesh is so much more compelling than all of the other Eternals on this for me. Am I crazy? Uh oh, of all the other, the Eternals, no, no, you're not crazy. I think I think of all of them, him or Fast Festos, Fastos, Fastos, um, Fastos. I, would, I was reading it as Fastos, but probably probably you're right, and I'm wrong. I don't remember. But him, other than other than him, yes, I think Gilgamesh is is the most interesting. I think he's just like a better filling that niche of like a Byronic, reluctant Marvel hero. Yeah, Icarus is very much just kind of like he barrels through all of his problems, and he's a real wet blanket this entire series. He's like, Thena's evil and betrayed us, and we're like, Icarus, why do you think that? And he's like, Thena's evil and betrayed us. Yeah, you can be uh, stupid or you can be a sourpuss, but you can't be both. Yeah. Um, and that's the and Gilgamesh is a sourpuss, but he ain't stupid. For sure. He gets some some good fights in. Yeah, and he's like he's kind of like the uh, the darker Batman on this on this league. But um, <laughs> I I feel like all of the I mean we'll talk a little bit more later, but I feel like there was a couple of characters that were starting to click for me, and if they were the only ones in the story, this would be a lot more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that's all like completely set aside when the when Crow shows up for me at least because I every time I encounter Crow I'm like who is this magnificent creature and then I remember that I loved Crow from the last time and I'm always surprised I'm always surprised to remember how much I love Crow. He's such a great antagonist. I feel like he he makes a really good antihero. Yeah, I, it's like um he's I didn't realize the Eternals had such a strong antagonist in their roster and i feel like i would have been much more interested if i knew how great this guy was i'm very excited to be disappointed by whatever stupid cgi monstrosity who doesn't talk they made him for the movie oh yeah get ready i'm sure it's gonna be so so much worse than this oh actually when crow first came back here i was like what retcon are they doing because he you know he's he's meeting a bunch of people shadowy groups in a bar and he's saying things like my predecessor who also shared my name or whatever i'm like are they retconning this and it's like no no he's just lying which like yeah so established character create trait of uh, crows he loves to lie to eternals and like who doesn't and other deviants, because he's like, I can't let anyone find out that I am functionally immortal. Well, yeah, because that would make him eternal, which is their yeah. their nemesis. Oh yeah, which and that right, and that's great. He has to hide his superpower because uh, he has the power of the oppressors. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, an interesting story. I I wish he was the focus yet again. Yeah, and 
also his desire for power, but also kind of that like righteous fury. Like the mix of that makes him an interesting character because he's not just like he's the good soul in the the deviant society. No, he's he's kind of a scumbag, but well, the, you I still really... like him because he is fighting at some points like for what is right. But you also are like you know that you got to be careful if he really came into power. Would he be good? Would he be not? He definitely wants the power. It's like uh, it's like Magneto. Mm. It's like a vaguer Magne- Lestify Magneto with less specifics in his characterization. Yeah. But that's the deviant way. They've got unstable molecules. He- <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, are the Fantastic Four wearing deviant skin uniforms? No. Also made of unstable molecules, though. Mm. Let's hope not. Yeah, I'm, I'll try to stop desiring for this just to be the series of Crow, but I that is what I want. That Yeah. That would I wrote make in my it notes, so much more interesting. There was a page of deviants where there's a lot of them were named on the same page, and I was just seeing Crow and Carcass and whatever the hell else their stupid amazing names are. And I realized mm-hmm. the um I the the deviants are like Sith Lords if they were all from New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> wow, your silence is deafening as a Jersey person. <laughs> well, um moving Don't on. You- <laughs> you don't think uh, the Jersey Sith Lord would be named Carcass? That's an awesome name. He would. He would be named Carcass. Carcass with two Ks. I love Carcass. He's wasted here. And Ransack with a K. That was the other good one. Mm. Um, yeah, they're mostly like background chumps. I, yeah, but I still love him. I still love Carcass. He's he's the best. He's great, and but he, he gets to do nothing while Reject gets so much more to do, and he sucks so much more. God, I hate Reject. <laughs> yeah. Cool name. Sort of a bummer. A real bummer. His only character trait is, I hate you. Let me beat you up. Yeah, but that's kind of Icarus's only character trait. Right? There was one other character who I thought was kind of a break breakout star from this. Who was it? And that was Kingo. Oh. Um, Tell I, me more. In my head, Kingo was the breakout character from that Eternals movie because the most life like a cultural resonance that seemed to have was people were really interested in Kumail Nanjiani on the press tour Mm -hmm. um and he was talking about his diet and he was doing all these interviews and his charming wife was coming along with him who's also a talented writer I just like uh that's what everyone was excited about the Eternals for a second but um I can't imagine him playing the character like this version of Kingo who's like a little bit like a hot shot, like a darker hot shot show off type. Yeah, a bit more, a bit more self serious too. Yeah, but not without like a little a glimmer in his eye. He kind of reminds me of Gambit, I guess. Mm, I feel like Gambit is a little, little bit more like free spirit than Kingo. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe that's Kingo's. What the thing he's lacking is he needs a sense of humor, which I imagine he eventually gets one. I would sure hope so. But I was just thinking like. If this was all about Gilgamesh and Kingo and Fina, but she was interesting, this would be an okay comic. And Crow? Of course, Crow. You can't forget Crow. But, but so you put the four of them together and Crow is the only deviant who's on the team. Uh, that's like an interesting superhero team. I feel like there's dynamics and there's conflict and there's characterization. Just like following around Icarus, going from snooze to snooze, having the same conversation over and over is not a sustainable story. No. But I, I would have liked, you know, you got your side your side story with Cersei and Carcass. I feel like they would have an interesting dynamic. Yeah, Carcass is I, very I... much the I'm uh, the intellectual read a book character, <laughs> and Cersei's kind of the party animal. Yeah, and and I also I like Fina like being romantic about the about the deviants and all the doom that uh, that's like that's uh, on paper that's great. And if someone could write girl, then it would shine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the amount of times she gets knocked out. <laughs> to be fair, Crow also gets knocked out almost every single time it happens, too. But it's like every issue or every other issue. They do something, they get captured, they run away, they teleport away. They do something, they get captured, they run away. Every time. Well, until the issue that uh, breaks the cycle, which is and the, the best issue in this bunch by far, which was issue eight. Which one was that? Oh, the party crashers. Yeah, just like, how did it take this long for somebody to be like, you know what we need after how many issues of Eternals have we read so far? Like 
40, 50? Something like that. It's taken like 50 issues of them existing for someone to be like, what would these people be like in a party setting? Which seems like the most obvious question you should ask. And it is great. And it's great. It's like the it's the most fun I've had with the Eternals yet was uh, them at this party with Hercules, who's a great party guest. You've got the you've got people hiding in the crowd. You've got the deviants showing up, and everyone thinks it's just you know pe- more people in a in costumes. One of them tries to crawl through the bathroom window and gets maced in the face. Yeah, just like all the wacky and somewhat violent antics you'd expect, but instead of like self serious high school philosophy it's like i don't know fun shitty drama i liked it so much more yep i i actually thought that that issue felt so stark in contrast to the ones that preceded it and i knew that there was two writers i thought this was where we transferred over to simonson but no this was the last of um the gillis issues yeah it is can i just say one of my other favorite panels of this was on page 373 in here it's when uh what's his face reject is is totally blasted (laughs) and uh who's schlub number two schlub number two he comes up he's holding this big giant block of ice he hands it to to the central villain who we'll get to pushes between him and crow who's dressed as a vampire and just decks reject reject is facing the audience and just has this terrifying face on. It's so good. He's like, you you dare hit me? <laughs> and this is also Bushema. This it looks much more Bushema than the earlier issues of this. And I feel like yes. maybe that's why uh, it's so energetic. It's got like, he's just more comfortable. He's like working in his own mode. Yeah, for sure. Oh, even though, um, who did that? I don't think that covers Bushema. No, that's a Keith Pollard cover. Well, actually, issue eight. I read all the credits. Why? Why I, I, just, why just the cover. We, I don't think we uh, credited every single cover artist, but it's the same as I the, don't uh, think they're even credited in the frontier. Oh, I see uh, Pollard's name in the corner. Oh, I'm sure he did. I, Because I, when I read the credits, I read off the collection front, and he's not credited. The cover credits aren't here. Just the regular credits and the collection cover credits. That's a shame. Um, I'm reading the trade on Hoopla, and I don't know why that would be different, but it's okay. So... Issue 9 is actually where Simonson comes in. Yeah. And despite thinking that the, the the change in tone towards fun with Simonson, immediately we get more self-serious. But I do notice the writing style difference. I was going to say, I think I also noticed it, but I couldn't quite put my finger. It felt more weird to say focused. It felt more focused and, and weirdly it felt more grounded, admittedly like grounded in the 1980s. Yeah. There was less less flitting about. It was like we are we're here to do a thing, and we're gonna do that thing. We're gonna just go. But I, this is like the first eternal story I've read where like I feel like characters would know what a phone is, or like a taxi, <laughs> or like a briefcase. I'm just thinking of like items you would see outside on the streets of New York. Just like yeah. it felt like the Eternals had been in our world, and this is the first time that they're like connected to it. Because all the other adventures have been in like Lemuria or Asgard or like weird dimensions or the mountains of Peru. And now we're getting the I guess more Lemuria, but but at least New York kind of feels like a place. And the Eternals are like, Well, guess we gotta hop in our space taxi. <laughs> um, yeah, the Eternals aren't using those things. I just feel like they would recognize them, which I, it was not a vibe I got from them earlier than this, than Simonson writing them. Mm, that's a good point. And I think that's like when the character, you know, when the when Thor's been around long enough, and you, you can't have him be, uh, be surprised every time he sees a light switch. God, you're right. And like, and same with Captain America too, right? Like, uh, you can do the bit where um, he's totally freaked out by modern culture for a little bit, but eventually you expect that he's seen Star Wars or something, or at least kind of knows about it. Yeah, just from uh, being around Spider-Man enough that he got every Star Wars reference. Oh yeah, and Hank for McCoy, sure. that that Ugh. that blue blue beast loves Star Wars references. Yeah, probably to the to the chagrin of everyone else. Yeah, except Peter Parker. They should team up more often. Mm, mm, maybe not <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe not right now oh yeah especially not right now 
Oh man, imagine if Ragnarok shows up in Dark Web though. That would be sweet. Mm, I'm excited for Dark Web. Everyone has evil clones. Let's just let, we can all come fight our evil clone. There's gonna need to be event an event. It's just called clones, and it's just all of them kind of at a uh, like an AA meeting for clones. You, um, I would love like Wreck It Ralph style. I would love. Um, but you know how Marvel's always doing events that are just stealing names from old Marvel stories from the Bronze Age. Yeah. Um, this big event that we're now fan designing, we should call Maximum Clonage, which was a real arc of Spider-Man. <laughs> I know. I uh, as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh no, oh, oh no, no, I know that story. <laughs> um, I ain't got Horrifying. a soft spot for that. Uh, speaking of horrifying, so Simonson right out the gate fridges Margot. Yeah. So before we, I guess before we get into that, we should probably actually say what the plot of this was because we haven't. Yeah. yeah, I mean, take it away. I was, uh, I was more interested. I guess I was more focused on like the character development and the plot. Kind of felt, at the end, the plot did feel like it mattered, which was, uh, which felt nice. Yeah, the the premise of this mini series is the great Toad is dead. Thank goodness, uh, he was the big dictator from from a lot of the other early eternal stuff and there's now a power vacuum and the priests of the deviants are coming into power led by the priest lord gar g-h-a-u-r gower i don't know how to pronounce it i said gower gower is more fun he's kind of been a shadow leader and crow you know wants the power but gower is like really the power behind the throne at this point even though like no one really knew what they were doing. Like they were secret and they've controlled a lot of the, the, you know, the practices of these deviants that we didn't know about beforehand. We're only learning about them now. And it adds a lot more texture to the society. Just being, having these things like, what are the fire pits? What happens to, this is where they introduce excess deviation. I guess really. that's true. I, I hadn't noticed that we, that hadn't come up before, but you're right. Yeah. So we're, all of that is I found that very interesting. I liked I like these kind of like weird political back and forths. But basically he's making his power play. Uh and even though Crow is kind of coming into the the power, quote unquote, he's really having there's a coup behind him uh, and he's basically ousted the second he's starts his reign in charge. Uh and so they're basically slowly building in the background, all of this like mythology of what are they looking for? Why are they doing this? Uh, and it all has to go back to the titular Dreaming Celestial, which I don't know if we want to go into that yet, but yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, hit me with the, what do you, why? What's your uh, big take on the Dreaming Celestial? Well, he, the, the, I, we didn't need it. And like it, it, The Dreaming Celestial is a MacGuffin to power up what was already kind of an interesting, like, schemer villain into one that had to be punched out. Yeah, and again, that's the plot of most MCU movies, I feel like, is uh, yeah. scheming villain pursues MacGuffin. But it doesn't make it a good plot. No, it's not a good plot. That's kind of one of the reasons why the, I I was like, uh, did I miss something with the plot? But no, it just washed over me. But that that's also, like, Crow is trying to get this power at the same time as Gar, and I liked that back and forth, you know, because it gives them competing motives. Uh, but by this been, point, mm-hmm. it just, it would have been better if I, if there was an interesting story, but, um, this yeah. was not an unpleasant way to move them from, shuffle them from place to place, um, and, and have character scenes, which was, uh, much needed. Oh yeah. And the globe hopping was nice too, because I don't, it, we, I just saw the characters in less isolated places than I was used to seeing them. Yeah, it it was well, it was it was more expansive. We got we actually got to see them do things in places and not you know go to the same five locations that Kirby went to. Yeah, and I mean like uh, love Jack Kirby, but eventually uh, uh, his backgrounds are are just uh, exciting colors. Yeah, yeah. So by this point in the series, by like issue nine, issue yeah, in issue nine, Margot gets fridged and. She remains dead through the end of this series. Yeah, and I was of two minds about this because, like, sucks to kill off your only, you know, one of your few girl characters for no apparent reason. But also just, like, maybe we need to kill all the humans. Maybe there's no reason for humans to be in an eternal story. 
maybe not kill, but it was so unceremonious too. It's like, oh no, she's dead now. Gotta hide it. <laughs> yeah. And then it... we we don't really get a. Uh... Like, she doesn't get a, a, any kind of, like, send-off scene. She just kind of screams and then is killed. There's a, a quote by uh, Larry Hama that I'm sure I've said before on this podcast where somebody asked him, um, you know, all your plots are so meticulously uh, detailed and, and complex and labyrinthine. How far ahead do you uh, outline a story? And he says, about a page or two. <laughs> and uh, Larry Hama's approach was always, he had a good memory for what he did, but he would always just do the most dramatic thing that could happen on that page right now and, like, damn the consequences, he'd deal with it later. Ooh. And that's kind of the vibe that Killing Margot had, was just be like, you know, it'd be crazy right now if someone just stepped out and bang, Margot was dead, and then we all just had to zip along. Yeah, you have to zip along, and she's been around since issue one. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. It felt, it felt weird. She was, uh, I was waiting for her to matter at all, and she didn't, and now she's dead. Yeah, and even, like, the end, we get a couple pages mourning her, which, you know, it's a, it's a sweet ending. Well, sweet, but... I mean, it's a, it's a well-written eulogy scene. Yeah, but it, it, it still feels unceremonious, especially because her characterization was girl, and then she's killed. And most of the actions in this was being sidelined or being kidnapped. And, and then her characterization was dead girl. So yeah. I, I looked it up. Margot mm-hmm. never came back to comics. That was her last appearance. Oh she has my been God. 28 issues total, and we have read every single one so far. <sighs> you and I have read every appearance of Margot Damien. I mean, I bet we've read most of the appearances of uh, Dr. Holden, too. I'm sure that's the case. Although, he, yeah, he I appears mean... in even fewer comics than... Uh, we read the, Yeah, this was his last appearance, too. He doesn't show up again. <laughs> but he's not dead. He's just forgotten. No, he didn't have to die for it. And that's called sexism. Yep. Uh, I guess I'm trying to think, I'm like, what else is there really to say about the end of it? Because the rest, the rest of the series is more just like convoluted sci-fi nonsense that I enjoy, but isn't worth recapping. Well, okay. There was two more characters who pop up at the end who I wanted to touch upon. Okay. The first is the mighty Thor. Okay. This isn't our first time seeing Thor with the Eternals, so it's kind of a bummer that um, as Marvel's premier mythological hero that he doesn't have more of a thing with any of the Eternals. He always has the blandest vibes. I was asking in my notes, I was like, which is the Eternal that Thor has the best chemistry with? And I think maybe Icarus, just like they have really bland, gay uh, tension, but just because something's gay doesn't mean it's interesting. I was going to say, I don't even think they've got that. Like, they, they have, I don't even think they have bland gay tension. I don't even think they have any tension. They just kind of stare at each other and go, we are the same. It's the, uh, I feel like they're on the verge of an anything you can do, I can do better contest. But just yeah. like, Her- but Hercules had so much more chemistry in the one issue he appeared in. I was going to say, I'm like, Hercules and Thor have much better that relationship than Icarus and, and Thor, or even Icarus and Hercules. Yeah, and it's just like, uh, I, which, who do we think is the problem here? Icarus. Icarus is the problem. Although, Walt Simonson's writing this Thor. That's true. I mean, maybe that's his his deep statement on the matter, is he doesn't think Thor should have much chemistry with Icarus. Uh, to be fair, I'm fine with that. Except that we have to read, like, another 30 years of Eternals after this. <laughs> but I would really like someone to have a relationship. But it focuses more on Cersei. Don't worry. I think I think Cersei becomes the main Eternal for a good while. She's not much more interesting than Icarus. I find her more interesting. Maybe marginally. Maybe marginally. And there's one other non-Eternal who showed up at the back end here, and I was just like, now this guy, this guy has chemistry with everyone. And that... Ooh. Is Karnak of the Inhumans. Where's Karnak? He shows up uh, in the last issue or two, in issue 11 or 12. Is he with the the, the Avengers? Um, He shows up in issue 10. And yeah, and he, he's with the... um. Oh no, Dave Chatterton does die. Yeah, Dave, Dave Chatterton dies. Right. But Dr. Oh, Damien Chatter- doesn't. Uh, not Dr. Holden doesn't. Okay, now literally I thought all three of those people were the same guy. <laughs> See? Why do the humans all suck in this? Karnak of the Inhumans is an underrated Marvel character. He had, like, one minute where it looked like he was going to pop off, and then it turns out Warren Ellis was a sex creep, and he hasn't appeared in an issue since. And also that series got delayed. Like, every issue was 
every six months or something. Yeah, that's true, too. I own it in trade eventually, and it, it is very good. But um, Karnak, his power is he can see the weakness in things. He's a kung fu master. He's got a weird vibe. I just, uh, and a cool, cool facial hair. More Karnak, please. More Karnak. So my conclusion on this run of the Eternals is Karnak rules, but we're still reading the Eternals. Sadly, yes. God, these these guys are make me want to go back to the Inhumans, and that's a crazy thing to have to say. It's funny because I finished this series and I'm like, you know, I could read more more Eternals, but mostly because I'm like, I want to see more Deviants. Yeah, because uh, I just want to read the Crow uh, the series. Yeah, Icarus. This might be Icarus's worst so far. Like Icarus has always been, eh, you know, Mister protagonist man but this time was he was nigh insufferable yeah this was where he was the most like prone to miss just, yeah like i said before you can be uh stupid or you can be dreary uh it sucks when you're both yeah i mean optimism is a strong emotion but uh next time should be something a little different oh for sure i don't know if we're ever going to revisit this dreaming celestial who was oh i kind of shunted it off to the side but I think we've dealt with, again, similar themes in later comics uh, of this, like, the Celestial that rebelled against the other Celestials and was put down and is now evil, but, you know, just had a bunch of power. I don't know if this is going to come up again. They do iterations on on that theme a lot of times, and the Dreaming Celestial does make many more appearances. And if we want to find it, I can uh, guide us there, because a bunch of those are Kieran Gillen stories that are pretty good. Kieran Gillen X-Men stories from, like, 2010. Dreaming Celestial shows up. I guess we'll follow up with that when we get to Kieran Gillen's run. Yeah, although this is, I don't know, if, I mean, this could be like a miscellaneous extra. I'll, I'll track it down for you and give you the issue numbers. In the meantime, yeah. though, there's a lot of uh, issues that our listeners are going to have to keep along with if that's the thing that they're doing, because we're going to be following the next, like, five or so years of um, Eternals appearances, but they do not have their own series. No, this is the this is where the drought starts happening in Eternals content. Although technically there are Eternals throughout this whole period because I think a few of the Eternals in addition to Cersei are on the Avengers, but the issues we're going to be focusing on as they deal with like the Eternals as their center uh are Avengers volume 1 numbers 308 through 310. Uh Potentially Avengers Spotlight number 35, uh, Eternals The Herod Factor, which I believe was either a one-shot or or a graphic novel. I believe that was an original graphic novel. Ah, of that line. So I guess we're going to be talking about that, that history a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, there's cool stuff. And then Avengers number 361 and 374 and 375. So it's all over the place. There is no collection that has all of them. Uh, In fact, some of them have never been reprinted. Uh, At least we couldn't find. So you'll either have to read them on Marvel Unlimited or track down a bargain bin issue. Um, But for those who want to try and find these in trade... Uh, Avengers 308 through 310 and Spotlight number 35 is available in the Avengers by John Byrne omnibus. Uh, Eternals Cosmic Origins includes Avengers number 365 and Spotlight number 35. The Eternals Complete Saga omnibus has the Herod Factor uh, OGN. if you can find just the Herod Factor one on its own, there you go. But Avengers number 374 and 375 have never been reprinted. At least as of right now. Yeah, I'm going to do my best. If you, a listener, uh, track down one of those issues, let us know. Send us a picture. I would love to uh, see crazy comic collection stories in action. Yeah, get ready to move from the 80s into the extreme 90s. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready for a, any change is a good change at this point. <laughs> Maybe we'll see more Doc, Dr. Uh, Holden, and he'll continue to kind of suck. Uh, he's the last uh, last man standing. God, I can't believe he's the last man standing. I thought that everybody was him, so I guess I, we should have figured that out. <laughs> Everyone was him. In the meantime, where can they find you, Jaina, on the larger interwebs? Folks can mostly find me writing for multiversitycomics.com, which is a pretty great website where I mostly write about X-Men and some other stuff, too. And, um... I still haven't deleted my Twitter, but I have not been on it in months now. Um, but I'm also on Tumblr at ramblingmoose.tumblr.com for some reason. Um, what about you, Elias? Where can you be found? 
Uh, I can be found uh, writing at multiversitycomics.com. I, too, have a Twitter, and I, too, might might finally be stopping posting there. I mean, I barely post it there anyway. (laughs) But if you want to follow me, uh, my Twitter handle is at Quetzal-ish. That's Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. If you say it backwards three times and spin around in a mirror, uh, Gar will appear and we'll all be sad. (laughs) Excelsior. <laughs>